There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 5th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Secondary schools are finding it impossible to recruit teachers. A Red Sea survey of schools for the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland highlights how there are vacancies in almost half of the country's schools. 75% of schools say they received no applications whatsoever when they advertised vacancies. 81 of principals have employed an unqualified teacher. Nine in ten schools say there have been times when there was no substitute teachers available for them. Teachers are forced to take on extra work. Special education needs teachers are being reassigned to mainstream classes and one-fifth of schools say they've had to drop a subject or subjects from the curriculum because of the shortage of teachers. It's a grim situation. Dermot Depur is the Deputy General Secretary of the ASTI and on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Why is teaching no longer attractive to people? I think there's a lot of things that are happening in fact that's one of the things we asked in our survey we asked teachers and we asked principals, school leaders uh, why um, teaching is declining as an attractive profession and actually there's a particularly shocking figure about job satisfaction which is going down so rapidly because we conduct these services regularly and now we have uh, at the moment job satisfaction is 44% among teachers it was 60% only two years ago mm, That so is shocking, I thought most teachers loved it and, and mm. it's been going down steadily I thought um, most teachers loved their jobs Well a lot of them still do but but what's happening is the workload is getting increasing uh, incrementally there's an, a new initiative every 10 minutes there seems to be there's um, uh, the, the two-tier wage structures, which, okay, has been addressed now, but it's left a kind of corrosive legacy. I think people felt, you know, undervalued. Um, There's also, and there's issues then of, you know, more and more problems from society coming into schools, and a lot of people seem to expect the schools to solve all the ills of the world, and while teachers do their best, they can't. Um, And also, uh, another factor is the 
length of the PME, the qualification needed to enter secondary uh, teaching after you've done your degree, and degrees, as you know now, now know, are nearly always four years long, and then there's a two-year postgraduate qualification on, on top of that. So that's mm. six years to become a teacher, which is nearly the time it takes to become a doctor. Okay. And you, get, you don't get paid for any of that. And but, the PMAs are costing eleven to 15,000 euros. For but you end up in a well-paid job, don't you? You're well, relatively well-paid, but people are now saying, as a lot of people are saying, but teachers are now saying that actually they can't afford to, particularly if they're teaching in the urban centres, mm. that uh, because of the price of housing, cost of living increases, and what may look a decent salary on paper is suddenly turning into something that they, they can't survive, that... that uh, one of the quotes that people said in the survey was the cost of living means a two-teacher salary in our home means we barely manage to pay the bills each month. Okay, so but th- did they not top that up uh, because it's a seven-month year, isn't it? There's five months uh, to earn extra money, whether that's marking mis- exams or taking on a part-time I, job. I don't know where you get seven months from. I mean, that's but but I but I can certainly think. I mean, the notion that teachers should be taking on part-time jobs. Yes, they do some exam work, which they get some money for. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to um, make you be able to, to, you know, buy your penthouse flat anywhere. Um, but most teachers need the rest. It is a very. I, I know people think, you know, that oh, sure, it's so easy because you have all these this time off. But in fact, most teachers are exhausted by the end of the year. It's a particularly, uh, it's a demanding job. It's a demanding job at the mm. best of times. But it's lots of demanding jobs that don't get three months off in the summer and the opportunity to take on additional employment. Well, I, sorry, I, I don't. I don't see that the solution to this problem is asking teachers to take on extra jobs uh, in the summer. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's good for them, and I don't think it'll be good for the for the students that the teachers don't have a break and time to recharge their batteries. It's one of the things that actually is coming through in all the surveys, and not just from the mm. teachers, but from the school leaders, that the workload is becoming uh, unbearable for teachers at the moment. But it's only it's only teachers and politicians who get holidays. Uh, on the scale that we're talking about. There is no other profession in the country, is there, uh, that enjoys such great holidays? Look, I have a very, what I would think is a quite stressful and demanding job as, you know, the Deputy General Secretary of a large union. But there's a very there's a big difference. One of the differences is I can switch off. I, can, I don't have to go in and perform for seven or eight hours every day. And we all know, I mean, we all know even as when we were students that if the teacher lost control for five minutes or lost their concentration for five minutes of the class, that, that was then finished for for several months so it's not like um that they don't need as i say they don't need to recharge their batteries i mean i i i'm actually quite shocked that you're suggesting that the solution for teachers uh in and the the for the teacher supply is to make it actually even more demanding. We have a crisis in teacher supply. Mm. Well, I wasn't, wasn't, no, in fairness, I wasn't suggesting that. I was saying it was a well-paid job, particularly when you take it into account the time off. Many teachers do fill out the summer months with part-time jobs, don't they? Some do, because they have to, but most, I don't think, do it by choice. Um, And as as I said, we're here discussing the fact that there is a crisis in teacher Mm. supply. So, I think we have to address why t- people are not... If it was that attractive, I don't think we would be having this discussion. And that's a valid point. It mustn't it's, be It's very clear yeah. that, and as mm. I said, teachers are... Job satisfaction is going, is going down, mm. down and down. Well, I found the results of your survey uh, to be completely shocking uh, and uh, it serves nobody well uh, and certainly doesn't serve students well if uh, they're not... 
uh, being taught uh, by somebody who's qualified or indeed if they can't uh, study the subjects uh, that they wish to study. Absolutely. So, wh- so where is the solution? Well, the solution is, and obviously the solution is not, there's no magic wand that's going to solve it overnight. But I, we asked both our principals and we asked teachers what they felt would um, help. Now, for the first time when we've asked this, remuneration came up as high because in the past it hasn't been the, um, the biggest factor that people have said. But now they're saying better remuneration because you say it's a well-paid job, but a lot of teachers and a lot of graduates are saying, well, I can get a better paid job now than teaching, uh, which is more highly valued. I can... Um, so, so the, mm. the teachers, I'll tell you what the teachers said in order of what the main factors, sure. better remuneration was the biggest one, yep. reduced teaching workload, the duration, duration of the PME, that's the qualification to one year. I, and, and that I think would, would, it went up to two years a few years ago and that has had a very detrimental effect because people come to the end of their, they've finished their degree, they've got a good, uh, because you have to have a, a, get a good degree, you'll have to have at least a 2-1 before you'll be getting considered for a, a, a PME course. And then they say, well, now I have to do another two years, very expensively, um, and then to go into where I won't get a job on day one, where mm. I'll have to, you know, wait maybe several years before I get any sort of permanence. Okay. I'm just wondering, though, what the difference between teaching is today and what it was once previously and why people aren't uh, attracted to the the profession, if you forget about alternative careers for a moment and what they have to offer, is it the cost of living? Is it the housing crisis, the availability and the cost of housing? That is part of it, certainly. And a lot of teachers or qualified teachers go abroad now to teach and they may go abroad for several years and then they're lost, obviously, to the system here. They go particularly to the Middle East, but to other countries as well, because they cannot afford to live here. And it's, you see, I suppose one of the differences as well with teaching, and it's not unique, I mean, there would be other professions I could think of nursing or, or being in the guards, where a lot of people now can at least, if, if, if they're finding the cost of living in, say, Dublin impossible, they can live somewhere and do a lot of their work from home. Teachers can't work from home. I mean, they did during the, uh, during the pandemic and they did their best. But I think everybody agrees that it was not ideal. Mm. Um, and so they have to travel, you know, if they're, they're either living, you know, an awful lot of teachers are either living with their parents, they're, they're kind of couch surfing, or they're commuting intolerable commutes um, because of the cost of living. And that obviously is affecting a lot of professions, but I think it particularly impacts on something like teaching where you have to be, uh, yeah. you know, in a particular place every day. Hoping to buy a home at the average age now, according to the CSO, which is at 39, apparently. Yeah, no, and, and that's and probably rising. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I have a daughter who's hoping to become a teacher, um, but she's, she's now working in China with her with her partner, um, and they're, they're working uh, teaching. She's getting a qualification. She's working teaching in primary schools in China. In or, and we'll be doing that in China and other places for several years because they're thinking that they would like actually sometime, if possible, to live in Ireland. But that means they will be lost to the teaching system in Ireland for, for several years, you know, and that's mm. that's that's not unique um there um there, there are other issues that come up uh, redeployment and job mobility is a great difficulty and i think a lot of teachers who particularly are working in in the urban areas would like maybe to move nearer home where they come from uh, but it's it's quite difficult to move now obviously that's partly because the vacancies um are not there although they are now there all over the country and i think i think uh, we have to take this very very seriously because as you said we have to, 
children and students now being taught by unqualified people, particular problems in certain subjects, um, modern languages, uh, science, maths is now facing absolute crisis. And if we can't teach our children maths by qualified teachers, then our whole strategy in terms of STEM subjects and uh, all our foreign direct investments because of our young, well-educated workforce is going to be under threat. Um, so, so it has to be, and, and if it costs money, it costs money. And, um, you know, you, you ask why now things are changing. You know, somebody says, one of the quotes, I am passionate about teaching and love my job. That said, the lack of permanency, the cost of housing, the lack of proper professional development are huge disincentives from any new entrants. I think people are looking at teaching now and they're not seeing, well, like you're saying, you, they don't kind of say, oh, there's the holidays. What they mm. see is... Um, a profession that has been treated very badly in terms of new entrants over the last 10 years, we have managed to address a lot of that problem. But as I said, there's a legacy there of a feeling that, well, as a teacher, I'm not going to be respected. Uh, and uh, the, the workload has increased dramatically. Yeah. And um, and while you say it's well paid, it's, it's not well paid enough to live in this country at okay. the moment. Well, given the scale of uh, the problems, the pent up frustration, if not anger, that teachers are feeling, I guess this really sets the scene uh, for your conference next week. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, a lot of the issues and maybe, you know, while we don't have motions that are directly about teacher supply, they are about the working conditions of teachers. And um, and that obviously has an effect. And, and I think there's a, there's a huge, I think, almost time bomb happening when you talk and, and hear what people are saying in the survey, that not only are we going to have a problem on the entry end, but that we're going to have people leaving the profession. I think people are thinking about it more and more now, and if there are other opportunities, they're finding that they'll say, well, I'll, I'll walk away. When, when our principals were surveyed, I, uh, I can't remember the exact figure. Oh, yeah, um, 75% of principals said that they had considered resigning. Wow. And 20% of, the, of principals, so of, of in, included in that 75, had said that they regularly consider resigning because mm. of the unbearable workload. Mm. And the, the reason mm. they give it an unsustainable workload, poor health, work-life balance and health and well-being. And while they were serving, they said they had good relationships with their staff, mm. with their students, with their parents, with their boards, but that they were just um, finding that um, their their work-life balance, their work style, that they were spending more and more time in the summer. And you talk about, um, you know, mm. holidays, which are not 30% of the year, but, but okay, they're, they're, they're more than more that principals are finding they're spending three months in the summer trying to recruit people because mm-hmm. it is such, such a crisis. And well, it has to be addressed. Yeah. It, it, it's obviously a very serious situation. I'm sure we'll be hearing more over the coming week uh, as uh, the conferences uh, start up next week. We leave there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Jermit Depeur, who's uh, the Deputy General Secretary of ASTI, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that came to us overnight by email. Uh, We'll start with those in terms of the comments tonight. Uh, A couple of interesting emails that came, one from John Connolly, who says, isn't it great to see Louth County Council spending so much of our money on new offices in Fair Street when they paid £8 for O'Reilly's in Narrow West Street and it's lying empty for years. I think they don't mind spending monies without having to answer to anyone. Thank you indeed uh, for that, John, uh, who was writing about £9 being spent. Uh, Is it not £12 uh, that's being spent? Uh, Another email 
That comes to us from Porrick Boyle uh, of Payroll Matters in Ireland uh, that I want to read some of to you because it's just far too long uh, to go into in detail. But it is very interesting. He says, as far as I'm concerned, every day is a bank holiday because no matter when I go into a bank, I'm at least an hour waiting for one uh, bank teller or cashier on duty while all of the other staff seem to be either new or are trying to get to y- you to use the machines which is useless uh, if you need to withdraw two or three thousand euro why do we continue to elevate the status of banks by referring to our national and our public holidays as bank holidays and bank holiday weekends. It's high time the people of Ireland wake up and smell the roses. It's now time to consign the term of bank holiday for public holidays in Ireland to history. Let this upcoming Good Friday and Easter weekend be the catalyst to banish the bank holiday as a term used for Ireland's national public holidays because of all of the confusion that it causes. Payroll Matters, uh, who Porrick represents in Ireland, have been trying to get people to refer to public holidays as public holidays. From a payroll perspective, calling them other names, such as bank holidays, only confuses matters, as all bank holidays, like Good Friday, are not public holidays uh, and do not have a statutory public holiday entitlement. Easter Monday is a public holiday for which you have a statutory public holiday entitlement, and Good Friday is not a public holiday. It is a normal day, unless your employer has more favourable terms in your contract. Christmas Day is a public holiday, but Easter Sunday is not. There's no statutory public holiday pay entitlement for Good Friday or Easter Sunday. We in the Facebook group Payroll Matters in Ireland advise employees to check their employment contract. Confusing bank holidays with public holidays leads to more confusion for PAYE workers and leads to a lot of misinformation uh, that has been spread on social media. It is a very interesting email from Porrick ahead of the bank holiday weekend. I mean, the public holiday weekend. And he tells us, the email is very long, Porrick. I hope you'll forgive me for not reading it all. He says, bank holidays were first introduced by a Victorian gentleman by the name of Sir John Lubbock, who was a banker, politician and the first Baron of Avebury. In 1871, he drafted the bank holiday bill. When it became law, he created the first official bank holidays. Initially, it was just banks of financial buildings that would close, which is where the name comes from. But as time went on. Businesses, shops, schools and the government all joined in. Interesting stuff. Thank you indeed for your emails. Porik and John to michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Meath County Council has voted for toll-free travel for HGVs on the M1 motorway. The motion was tabled by Labour Councillor Elaine McGinnity, who's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what, what, what will this mean in effect? Well, um, we're seeing that the toll in my area in particular um, is causing huge uh, problems, people avoiding the toll. Uh, So the town of Julianstown or the village of Julianstown has over 100,000 cars per week going through it in excess. Um, And that's all because they're avoiding the toll. Now, HGVs, why HGVs? Well, they're causing, uh, me County Council, we heard um, at our own meeting on Monday, they're having to find 5 million per annum to deal with road repairs. Now, um, there's a huge amount of HGVs in this area. We have a lot of heavy industry. And uh, I'm looking at that particular uh, type of vehicle because I want our roads to be safer. There needs to be alternatives to cars. We know that going forward. But if the HGVs use the toll, we'd have more space in our roads to allow active travel measures such as cycling. It 
it's more environmentally friendly and uh, also mm. there's a cost and that's a huge factor. Now we know the Minister came in in January and intervened with the toll increases. So approximately 9% across the board is what uh, the toll companies or operators were proposing and the Minister intervened and has cost the Irish taxpayer 12.5 million since January in order to alleviate the extra charges the toll companies are about to put on motorists. Now in uh, June, this is due to end on the 30th of June. So for a car, it's due to increase uh, just the M1 alone by 10 cent um, per per journey, shall we say. And for HGVs, it's going up 50 cent. Mm. At the end of the day, it's the consumer that's going to be paying this increase because they will have to pass it on. Yeah, well, because if you look at what's going on, it's not just tolls that are going up. Also, the excise duty is due to be restored. So on petrol, it's going up 8 cent a litre on diesel. It's six cents a litre. And the tolls themselves for the haulage companies or for many of the bigger companies Mm -hmm. uh, will result uh, in uh, their costs going up uh, by many thousands. If uh, anyone listening drove through Julian Sound this morning and managed not to pull their hair out, uh, they probably need to be congratulated because it's so gridlocked gridlocked every day of the week. Uh, Do you think that that would stop if uh, you took the trucks out of the equation? No, but it would make life a little easier for those having to use Julianstown. I mean, Julianstown needs to be bypassed. It is unacceptable you've that many cars going through a small village like that. We need alternatives too. We need increase in public spending in uh, transport such as um, you know bus routes to allow alternatives to cars. But in tandem with that, we need to look at the wear and tear on our roads by HGVs. Motorways were built. We were told this, that they would take the traffic out of the small villages and towns across the country. It's not just Uniontown, it's across the country. And, you know, that's not happening. The reality is... Okay, if you took the trucks out of Juliantown, would you save the five million? If you took the trucks out of Juniontown, it would go some way in saving the five million because the pa- the, the council is the council is picking up the tab from them not using it. It's also that pay the council, the consumer through our taxes, to pay uh, for this. So if you look at the subvention that's given to the toll industry in this country, the taxpayer paid for uh, the the less car numbers, shall we say, on Mm. the roads during COVID. We had contractual obligations. So the government stepped in there and paid. Look at the bumper tax uh, take at that stage. Now the taxpayer is again paying because they want to increase the maximum. They're taking the maximum amount of toll increase that they can uh, possibly put on consumers. They're doing that and it's costing 12.5. Well, you sound like a crank now. Uh, I mean... Um, no, but I mean, I mean there has uh, to be some uh, give and take. There has what do you mean? I mean, there is give and take. Uh, they built the road. They built the road. They can't. The road built a long time. On, on, under, the yeah. agree, under the agreement that there would be tolls yeah. and yeah. that we wouldn't have motorways, the government, uh, uh, many governments have told us we wouldn't have motorways uh, if we didn't have these private companies build the tolls, uh, uh, build the motorways, uh, and then told them, which was. The deal. Are you saying that we welch on the deal or that they're not no, entitled the, to their uh, part of the deal? But there has to be give and take. The deal okay, was well, that you don't want the Well, you don't want the trucks. You, know, you, don't want, you, you don't want the trucks in Julian Sound. That's fair enough. Uh, but if it's give and take, would you not take that five million and give it to North Link, who operate the M1 toll? But we already gave 12.5 million to the toll company since January. Now, this is going to cost 
approximately, when it comes in in June, 8 million to the, to the uh, HGV or the, the trucking companies, this 50 cent per journey is going to cost that. Now, I look mm. at the toll companies because I live near one and I'm looking, there's no operators. I know a lot of your listeners, the, the toll operators have been... But so what? You're, all, you're sounding no, like no, a crank they, again. This is... It, it, That's that, their business. That is their business, but there has to be fairness in this. And the but fairness that, 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 is being that, all passed on to the customer. The customer needs... What is coming back? All right, but it's so unfair to rewrite contracts. But what is, what, where is the value for the customer in this? Where is the value for bit all of us? late in the day to be talking about that now. Uh, the value, the, the value the, to answer the question, though, the value is the motorway. But hold on a second. Do we need better value and how we spend our public money? And I'll, I'll, do, we I'll hud, do we hoodwink private companies and get them to no, build a motorway and then, cha- and then change the terms of the contract? But what exactly, this is my point, Michael, are we getting for these increases? The motorway. But with the motorway is already there. They're asking for an increase in total. Mm. So exactly, what? show me how it's going to be spent. Show me where the money is going. Show me the benefits. It's going in profits to Northlink. Yeah, I mean, is it all one way or do we well, not Well, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't like it, if you don't like it, drive through Julianstown. And you don't have to pay the toll. And you go back to why were tolls built? This yeah. wasn't supposed to happen. So well, if the tolls weren't built, the motorways wouldn't have been built and everybody would have been going through Julianstown, so it would have been an awful lot worse. But we don't... It, it, so 100,000 cars is not acceptable per week. It but it would not. be 200,000, wouldn't it? Notions. But that's the point. It would be 150 or 200,000 cars a week if the motorway wasn't there. It, well, it could very well be, but we might have bypassed Julianstown and have alternatives. But we have put all our eggs in one basket with these tolls, and we have 10 years. We'll talk mm. about the M1. We have 10 years to run in this contract. It's due up in 2033. Now, the government came in and took on the M50. We know that they bought out that contract. There is money to be made in tolls, but why are we handing it all over to private operators? Should we not be looking for value for the taxpayer here? And should we not be looking at what's in it with these increases? Increases for the sake of increases are not okay in this environment because we're all suffering. We need to start asking questions on how our money's been spent. Is this value for the taxpayer? So these increases that the toll companies are looking for are they really merited? What exactly are they going to spend it on? As you say, is it going to the bottom line? Or actually, are we going to get um, uh, our tolls and our roads upgraded? Are we going to um, keep looking at these contracts um, as if they the, can't well, the be... the motorways are in great but condition. The mo- but, the mo- but the minister himself was able to go in in January and negotiate that the Irish taxpayer pay the 12.5 million for the increase mm. in tolls. So if that nego- were you able to negotiate in January sure you can, surely you can be able to negotiate in June. Okay. And that's my point there well, needs to be a give and take. We'll see if uh, Eamon Ryan uh, the Minister does that uh, again but we live there for the moment Elaine. Thank you indeed. Thanks for very much. Us. That's uh, right. Labour Councillor on Meath County Council Elaine McGinnity. Some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, somebody says taking the trucks out of Julianstown won't make much difference Michael. The problem is uh, the massive amount of houses built in East Meath over the last 20 years without the relevant infrastructure to match. That's Cahill in Mornington. Thank you indeed. Uh, We'd uh, a text um, from somebody uh, who says, I don't be in Drogheda very often, uh, but I I see we've an open air toilet at the top of Peter Street. Uh, I can't see it taking off. It'll solve the odour problem though. Uh, That's from John in Drogheda. (laughs) 
I think uh, John might be uh, winding us up a little bit saying he's not in Drada very often if he's in Drada. Thanks, John. Uh, somebody else says, good morning, Michael. How dare this alleged government whom were not elected by the Irish people decide our neutrality? Uh, well, I don't think they will um, decide our, our neutrality. Um, uh, that's uh, a, a, an open question to some degree, but they certainly are an elected government. Uh, that's uh, democracy. It is the people who decide our future stance. A referendum needs to take place if we are an alleged democratic country. We are in enough troubles already with their capitalist attitudes, says our caller. Thank you indeed if you've been in touch. Our telephone number 041 Text or WhatsApp 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM The Alzheimer's Society of Ireland has extracted data from a survey that was carried out last year by Family Carers of Ireland and what they've done is look at how people who are caring for other people with dementia are, are coping given the cost of living crisis uh, that is taking place in the country and uh, the findings of uh, the 129 people that they looked at are, are pretty stark. Uh, many of them are, are cutting back on household essentials or cutting back on seeing friends and family uh, because of a shortage of money. Some have fallen into arrears in paying rent or mortgage repayments and are finding it difficult to make ends meet. Uh, let's speak to Clodagh Whelan, who is Advocacy Manager with the Alzheimer's Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Clodagh. Thanks for joining us on the programme. You found uh, that on average, a carer or somebody who's caring for somebody with dementia is 53 years of age, is a woman uh, in her middle age and is working full-time, essentially, caring for people. Yeah, that, that was something that was really notable in this research, that over 79% of people surveyed said they were providing between 80 and 100% of the care for their loved one. And look, you know, we know the family carers of people with dementia are at the front line of dementia care in Ireland and they make huge personal sacrifices. They want to know that their loved one is safe and looked after. But what we're hearing from those families is that an already stressful situation, because the caring role can be stressful, is now being made worse by financial concerns. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I suppose we're we're concerned across the board in what we've learned from this research. We're concerned that 55% of people are having difficulty making ends meet. We're very concerned around the fact that people are cutting back on household essentials that people are falling into mortgage arrears, utility bill Mm. arrears. But one that really stuck out for us was that 22% of the people surveyed said that they were cutting back on seeing family and friends, Mm. that they weren't going to as many social occasions. And, you know, there's an impact on uh, loneliness is bad for your health. Isolation is bad for our brain health. And, you know, the caring journey can be a lonely one. Oh, absolutely. Just and a very difficult, stressful. Yeah, it yeah. takes a toll on the person themselves. But it, so it, you it, need it, that social interaction to, to kind of mitigate against that. It's little surprise, though, given uh, another finding, which is that one in three of uh, the people uh, surveyed are earning less than 20,000. You, you can do little <laughs> yeah. or nothing on 20,000. And if you're working between 140 and 168 hours a week caring for yeah, dad or yeah. mam or for your husband or whatever the case may be, uh, you don't have the money and you probably don't have the energy. No, and what a lot of people are doing is, I suppose they're they're reliant on family and friends 
and it can be a bit of a patchwork. You know, what we would see is, you know, some some, you know, families, you do Monday, I'll do Tuesday, the home carer comes in Wednesday, and even managing that is, is nearly like a full time job. If someone falls you know, ill or something, it's like a house of cards. And I suppose what we we as an organisation have done extensive research around the impact of caring for a person living with dementia. We know, for example, that family carers are three times more likely to have clinical depression than the general population. Mm. We know it has an impact on your life. And actually, even after your loved one may move to long-term care or die, that that impact will stay with the family carer. But it's not the fault of the person with dementia. It's the fault of the, the, the services and supports that are available to those families. So we want to really clearly, I suppose, say to the government that family carers of people living with dementia are struggling financially. And we need, you know, there was a Doyle debate recently uh, talking about how much family carers save the state. Marion Harkin's motion indeed. uh, We listened to uh, a a lot of that uh, and indeed it it is impossible to put a price on it but it's the equivalent of billions that the state is saving uh, as a result of people caring for loved ones. But It's when really interesting, so oh, sorry Michael, it's, it's really interesting what you said there about it's impossible to put a price on it because so we have a price of 800 million that carers of people with dementia save the state but of course you can't really put a price no. mm. on keeping your loved one at home them knowing that the family members beside them to support them on every step of a difficult mm. journey. Oh, and how important you know, it is for people to stay at home if they can stay at home. And that's yeah, obviously absolutely. not possible for an awful lot of people, unfortunately. Uh, but you're already uh, looking uh, at ways uh, that uh, <coughs> people caring for uh, those with dementia can be helped. Uh, and you're looking for some measures to be introduced in the upcoming yeah. budget, as far away as that seems at the moment. I know it is far away, but I suppose we're beginning the conversation now because we do want the government to understand that this is a serious problem and we have to really put our heads together and find serious and workable solutions. I mean, there's there's some long-term measures, some faster ones that could happen straight away. Like at the moment, the carer's allowance is not a qualifying payment for the fuel allowance. So that means that, you know, people are struggling with the rising cost of fuel and household bills. That would be one that we'd we'd really welcome. And also, I suppose that, you know, the government did a lot of one-off payments in Budget 2023. And of course, we welcome them. We're, We're very glad to see any extra money going to family carers and people with dementia. But what we need to see now is more meaningful long term supports because you can't plan your life. You can't say, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay the electricity bill? How am I going to put petrol in my car? If you're dependent on intermittent one-off mm. payments. So while they're very welcome, and we believe family carers should get them, just like others who receive social protection, and there is an issue actually with the one-off payment um, that's coming now in April, and that doesn't include people who receive the annual carer support grant as a standalone payment. And we have asked the government about that. But generally, we want to see higher weekly payments because okay. then people mm. can you know, plan their life in mm. a dignified manner. OK, Cloda, I have to leave there. I'm out of time, but thank you indeed for joining Thanks us. Thanks for your program. time, Michael. Thank you indeed. Cloda Whelan, Advocacy, Advocacy Manager with uh, the Alzheimer's Association of Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Some more of uh, the comments coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Parik in touch with us saying he couldn't get over Dermot de Pere from uh, Asti defending the long holidays uh, that teachers get. Parik says, do they need a three-month break to recharge their batteries? Uh, Parik is a lorry driver and he tells us he has to work 90 hours a week and he just gets the usual amount of holidays. What is it, 21 days a year? Uh, and that uh, obviously is over the whole year. He says Dermot is living in cloud cuckoo land saying teachers need such long holidays to recharge. Uh, but it is a, a very demanding job at the same time, Parika, as we heard uh, this morning. Rita uh, <laughs> was a little bit taken aback too. Uh, she says she can't believe that teachers are moaning about their profession when they have a relatively short working day and have excellent holidays and time off. They have no comprehension of reality if they're really trying to make out that they're hard done by. Thank you uh, for your call as well. Uh, going back to John in Drogheda, who was talking about uh, the urinal at the top of uh, Peter Street. Uh, he said he wasn't in Drogheda very often and I thought he might have been winding us up. John, thanks for getting back in touch. I am sorry that I doubted you. He says, I'm outside of the town on the Ballymckenny Road. My address is Drogheda. I don't be down in the town though very often and it takes me that long to get through all of the roadworks and traffic lights. When I do get through, then it's time to go home and then I have to do it all over again in the opposite direction. Oh my God, John. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. Our telephone number 0419 Text or WhatsApp if you want to comment 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as you know, the former American President Donald Trump was formally arrested and charged in a court in New York yesterday. He faces 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. During the proceedings, uh, Donald Trump didn't uh, say very much. Uh, He didn't speak to reporters as he walked in to the courtroom for his arraignment. Uh, And he was warned by the judge, Juan Merchant, uh, to refrain from rhetoric that could inflame or cause civil unrest. Tone down the rhetoric was the message Uh, to Mr. Trump. After the court, though, Donald Trump went home to Mar-a-Lago and spoke to his supporters from the ballroom in his mansion. Thank you very much, everybody. And we have to save our country. God bless you all. God bless you all. I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. That went down well. This was a a former president facing criminal charges claiming he has been vilified by his political opponents. From the beginning, the Democrats spied on my campaign. Remember that? They attacked me with an onslaught of fraudulent investigations. Russia, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Impeachment hoax number one. Impeachment hoax number two. The illegal and unconstitutional raid on Mar-a-Lago right here. (laughs) 
They're lying to the FISA courts, the FBI and DOJ relentlessly pursuing Republicans, the unconstitutional changes to election laws by not getting approvals from state legislators, the millions of votes illegally stuffed into ballot boxes and all caught on government cameras. And just recently, the FBI and DOJ in collusion with Twitter and Facebook in order not to say anything bad about the Hunter Biden laptop from hell. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Which exposes the Biden family as criminals and which, according to the pollsters, would have made a 17-point difference in the election result. And we needed a lot less than that, like about 16.9. It would have been in our favor, not my favor, our favor, because our country is going to hell. Good God. The Biden family are criminals. Trump was basically asking if there is anything that is too low when it comes to the efforts to destroy Donald Trump. And now this massive election interference at a scale never seen before in our country beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York, who campaigned on the fact that he would get President Trump. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. This is a guy campaigning. You want to get President Trump at any cost, and this, before he knew anything about me, didn't know a thing about me, he was campaigning. As it turns out, virtually everybody that has looked at this case, including rhinos and even hardcore Democrats, say there is no crime and that it should never have been brought. Never have been brought. Everybody. Even people that aren't big fans have said it. They said this is not the right thing to do. 
It's an insult to our country as the world is already laughing at us. Donald Trump, uh, the victim. Now, when Trump says uh, the world is laughing at America, you might wonder if it is because of the shame Donald Trump has brought to his country. But that's not exactly how Trump sees it. There's so many other reasons, like our open borders, our incompetent withdrawal from Afghanistan, where we left behind American citizens, $85 billion worth of the best military equipment in the world. Lost 13 magnificent young lives and far too many to mention that are so badly hurt with the loss of arms and legs and facial obliteration. The most embarrassing time in our country's history, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's a long list and there was more. Then our give up on energy independence and even energy dominance. We're going to be dominant within six months, more than any other nation, times two. Energy, then crime. We had this all just three years ago, our raging crime statistics. If you look in Democrat-run cities, numbers the likes of which we have never seen before. Indeed, crime in Democratic cities. But worse still... The open threats by various countries of the use of nuclear weapons... Something never mentioned or discussed by outside nations during the Trump administration and which could very well lead under the Biden administration's leadership to an all-out nuclear world war three can happen. We're not very far away from it, believe it or not. Trump was on a a roll. Nuclear war indeed, and nuclear war may not sound good, but that doesn't uh, say it all, uh, because they do say that it's all about the economy, stupid, don't they? An economy that has been crippled by the biggest inflation we have seen in more than 60 years, and a military that I used to defeat ISIS in four weeks. They said it would take four years, four weeks, to kill al-Baghdadi and Soleimani, that has now gone woke at the top levels by trying to indoctrinate everyone down to the lowest-ranking patriot. But now they have really stepped up their efforts by indicting the 45th president of the United States who received... (laughs) 75 million votes, which is more than any sitting president in the history of our country. The supporters love that. Now, this is Donald Trump speaking after his courtroom appearance yesterday. It sounds like an election campaign speech. You'd be forgiven for getting, for forgetting that the former president has been charged with criminal offences. With a local failed district attorney charging a former president of the United States for the first time in history on a basis that every single pundit and legal analyst said, there is no case, there's no case. They kept saying, there's no case. (laughs) Virtually everyone, but it's far worse than that because he knew there was no case. That's why last week he delayed for a month and then immediately took that back and threw this ridiculous indictment together. Came out today, everybody said, this is not really an indictment, there's nothing here. My lawyers came to me and they said, there's nothing here, they're not even saying what you did. The criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury information. 
for which he should be prosecuted, or at a minimum, he should resign. Remarkable. Just remarkable for a former president to suggest that uh, the Attorney General should be prosecuted would be unbelievable, in fact, if Trump himself wasn't in the dock. Trump went on from there to talk uh, about uh, this conspiracy theory some more and indeed Alvin Bragg's co-conspirators uh, conspirators, uh, as he sees them. There is no end to Donald Trump's conspiracies. Uh, and if it wasn't bad enough that he accused the Attorney General of criminality. This is what he had to say about the judge in the case of criminal charges against Donald Trump. We are right now. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris and now receives money from the Biden-Harris campaign and a lot of it. Okay, I think uh, Donald Trump has well and truly started his uh, election campaign to become uh, the President of the United States of America for the second time next year. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's hard to believe, uh, but 425 uh, single males who are either refugees or who have come to this country seeking asylum have nowhere to sleep tonight. Uh, They're homeless, uh, as in without emergency accommodation, street sleepers, if you like, or if uh, they have somewhere to live. It's not known, but it is known that the state has not been able to provide them with accommodation. As you know, the City West Transit Hub has uh, paused uh, in terms of accepting new refugees and there are many challenges uh, facing uh, the government, indeed all of us, uh, in the coming weeks and months, particularly now as hotels return to tourism. John Lannan, CEO of Duras, is on the line and a very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. There was some good news yesterday uh, that we're going to see a, a number of modular homes come on stream shortly, 700 apparently, which will uh, give 2,800 people somewhere to stay. Indeed. So um, we we do, as you say, have a refugee accommodation crisis at the moment on top of the housing crisis we have here in Ireland. And it's quite adversely affecting beneficiaries of temporary protection from Ukraine and international protection applicants from other parts of the world. Um, Modular homes for Ukrainian refugees have been promised now for almost a year. They were originally supposed to be completed by last November. We're now told that they won't be ready until June. Um, we also read that the plans um, have faced delays, of course, because of local opposition and protests. But we hear in recent days as well that a lot of the large hoteliers could be ending the refugee accommodation contracts, and that could result in the loss of another 1,300 beds mm. between now and the end of May. Which um, is a small number of people in the overall context. Uh, the hotels had been accommodating about 12,000 people, hadn't they? They have, but um, as I said, you know, with with all of this coming on top of an existing housing crisis, Mm. it means we really still have a refugee accommodation crisis. We don't see progress on long-term solutions from government. Mm. Now, the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, as they're called, have done Trojan work um, securing accommodation for both the beneficiaries of temporary protection from Ukraine and international protection applicants over the last year. They've accommodated 60,000 people, but their efforts are unsustainable. Now, mm. there was a working group set up about a month ago. Cabinet allocated an initial amount of 20 million. The idea was to intensify efforts to find accommodation for refugees. Um, and they're considering things like commercial properties, sites 
for development, refurbishment, purchase and the use of modular buildings. But, you know, we've been calling, as, as others have, for a strategy now for quite a while, a strategy that reduces reliance on hotels and other congregated settings. And we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, what's really worrying about all of this is uh, that 1,400 people have been asked to move out of hotels in recent months and about 1,200 of those had been uh, accommodated elsewhere. But the government was unable to find accommodation for 209 people. Now, uh, if you think then that there's another 1,300 people who are going to be asked to leave the hotels between now and May... Uh, and you couldn't find accommodation for 200 out of those 1,400 people, you've got a real problem looming. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the problem is is one that um, puts very vulnerable, at-risk people in extremely difficult situations. You know, we're finding you know, people are homeless as people who come in here seeking international protection or given a voucher sent out onto the streets, streets that they don't know. Um, they're unable to find um, place to live because those international protection applicants cannot avail of the homeless services. Um, and then we're finding that as the contracts for hotels, either for those protection applicants or people from Ukraine are ending, people who have accommodation are being disrupted and moved. And even though the children have started in school, they're suddenly being shifted to another part of the country. So this has real impact on people who came here seeking protection. And and we should be doing that. You know, we have obligations Mm. internationally um, and and morally as well to to do that. And we're not doing a good job of it right now. Okay. And uh, well, they talk about 425 single males uh, who have no accommodation. Um, are we talking about 425 men? Yes, there have, as I understand, been a small number of women who have also been... Oh, um, sure. I, I was asking if, if there's boys included in that, children, in other words. So the um, fa- families are given priority when it comes to finding accommodation. So it's single people or, or couples without children who are not being given accommodation now. And, you know, again, this, this is a really worrying because, mm. again, we don't see the pathway out of this situation. We, we've, the standards in the emergency accommodation have dropped to levels that we wouldn't have even considered in the worst days of direct provision a couple of years ago because yeah. we've now got people living in tents in in a number of locations around the country. The weather is still wet and damp. We know from talking to people who are living in those tents that they, they, they're cramped, they're, they're living alongside other people, mm. no privacy or space, and it's really difficult for them just to cope. In and really situation. dangerous. What, what, what happens dangerous. What happens if, let's say, somebody arrives from Syria or Afghanistan or somewhere else for that matter, a man arrives and they're told there's no accommodation, they're sent on their way with a bus ticket and a voucher for Duns, is it? A voucher, yes, and and um, sent sent out on their way and um, with an indication that if or when accommodation becomes available, it, it will be provided to them. But, you know, th- there are real difficulties here. As people go out onto the streets, they're at risk. It may not be possible to contact them. They may not have a phone. Nobody knows where they are. 
they, they try to find a place to rest either by going to organisations that they've heard of that might be able to help them or trying to find contacts or people that they might know who would, within the country that would be able to do something for them. But this is hugely unsatisfactory. Mm. We have to remember that there are people coming in who have been traumatised by war and persecution, who have um, suffered di- displacement and, and really difficult journeys in order to get here, and they're extremely vulnerable from 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 both a physical and mental health point of view, and and need to be treated better than being just put out onto the street. And why can't we find somewhere for them to live? Uh, the government told us in March uh, of last year to expect two hundred thousand people to arrive. Less than half of that number has arrived. And absolutely yes. So while we. Um, we we know that the numbers that have arrived from Ukraine have been quite quite significant, up to eighty thousand people, mm. and we know that the numbers of people um, seeking asylum here from other parts of the world have certainly gone up. The, the numbers um, were predicted, and as you say, there was talk of much higher numbers. And and like others, you know, Doris has been calling since the start of this. Um, you know, increase in, in people arriving here for a national strategy or a plan around how this was going to be addressed because it, it is an emergency situation. You know, business as usual in terms of what we were doing with regard to direct provision and contracting accommodation providers was never going to work. There needed to be something better, something different than that in terms of, you know, and, and you know, while it's positive that this working group has been set up by, by the Cabinet and um, the, the T-shirt now um, and, and given an amount of money to look at different options, um, it, it's, it's coming quite late. And, and also we haven't yet seen any indications of what's going to emerge from that that will address the emergency um, that we have right now. Okay. Can people listening help to address it? Well, I I think we've got to um, continue to look for that plan and to ask our our politicians for that. But I also, I'd go back to the the point in relation to to modular homes that I mentioned around the the difficulties that um, the government have said that Mm they've got there and the delays that are facing as a result of local opposition and protests. I think in all of this, communities are really important. The length and breadth of the country, you know, certainly a lot more needs to be done by by government to intensify communications and engaging, you know, communities. Mm. But, mm. but communities themselves are key. And I think it's really important that they become engaged, certainly ask questions, um, ensure that, you know, they don't allow vaccines to be created for the violent parachuting to just start spreading lies and misinformation. And at the length and breadth of Ireland, people need to continue to show the goodwill that has been shown since last February to people who are arriving here seeking mm. protection. Find ways to welcome them into the communities rather than trying to look for ways to oppose them and shut them out. Mm. Uh, and if they have accommodation lying idle, maybe to think uh, about how what is it, 425 uh, people who've come here from war-torn areas predominantly are sleeping on the streets of Dublin? Absolutely, and I think mm. one thing that can be done there is that each of the local authorities have an offer a home scheme, and if you contact them, go to their websites, if you have a vacant um, property or vacant unit, do get in touch with them and 
and, and make it available if possible. Okay. John, we leave it there. Thank you, as always, for joining us. John Lennon is the CEO of Duras. Duras is an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organisation that works to support and promote the rights of all migrants in Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us. A lot of people in touch with us today. Great to be hearing from so many people. Uh, we had a listener in touch about caring for loved ones at home who says, I'm looking after my 96-year-old mother at home night and day. My family are the ones suffering, yet I try my best to look after my husband and them too. I applied for carer's allowance. It's mean tested on my small pension and my husband's earnings. He just gets a normal week's wage, yet I get little or no carers. Why means test? And it's me looking after my mother, not my husband. Yet social can pay out dull payments, uh, 100% to well-abled men that can go out and work but won't work because they get everything too handy, free bus passes and all of that. I'm sick of how the government system works and thanks for taking the time to read this. Well, thank you for taking the time to send us your text. Pat and Lear says, Michael, maybe you can tell me where the money is going from the tolls in this country because the roads I have to drive on are just full of potholes and what I was told is that the toll money is not going to any other road that I know of so where are all these millions going to? Uh, well as I understand it Pat they're going uh, in profit to the operators of the tolls uh, who built the motorways and uh, uh, and indeed to maintain the motorways I don't think you'll come across a pothole on a motorway so some of the money is spent on that but the rest of it's going on profits that's as I say as I understand it but thank you indeed uh, for your message our phone number is 0419832000 just to remind you if you want to text or WhatsApp 0861800 658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Just a, another comment about teachers and uh, the Asti Red Sea survey on the shortage of uh, teachers. Somebody's saying, I, I'm not a teacher, but there is a shortage of teachers. That survey makes it clear. But why don't people go to college, study and become a teacher if they want long holidays? Thank you. Indeed, uh, the teachers are on their Easter holidays. A lot of people are on their Easter holidays at uh, the moment, uh, for that matter. I'm sure some politicians are on holidays, although they're probably working hard in their constituencies because the doll is in recess for Easter. But the government most certainly isn't on holidays uh, this week. It's been a very busy week for the government meeting yesterday and uh, again today for a second cabinet meeting. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Sean. It's a packed agenda for the ministers today when they meet. Yeah, that's right. Busy agenda again today. Like the, the business of the government doesn't stop, as you say, even though the, the TDs are notionally on holidays anyway, even though they're, they're, I'm sure they'll say they're very busy in the constituencies, as you, as you point out. So quite a few bits on the agenda today. Obviously, there's, there's a lot in relation to the Defence Forces. There is a memo in relation to the progression of the inquiry into uh, the, the conditions in the Defence Forces, the statutory investigation that have been called for after that awful report that was released last week that some women were barely tolerated in the Defence Forces and highlighted instances of bullying, harassment and sexual abuse uh, across the organisation. So a little bit more from the, the tarnished uh, Micheál Martin on that. And as well as that, he's looking to set up a, a, a forum, a new forum, basically looking at the future of Ireland's foreign policy and place in the world. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines a small bit here, uh, see neutrality as part mm-hmm. of that, because the, one of the conditions for this being called, and there will be 
three different sets of the forum over a course of four days in Dublin, Galway and Cork is post-Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Where has that left Europe? Where has that left the world? And where has that left Ireland? And on a, in a week when we saw Finland join NATO, you know, abandoning their long-held position of neutrality and doing so actually with the, the support of a huge amount of people. It was interesting they had an election campaign which the mm-hmm. Prime Minister lost, but it wasn't because of that issue. It was other things are handling in the economy mostly that sort of set that up. So that is going to be an interesting conversation over the summer. Where should we go with Ireland's neutrality as a sort of, sort of fit for purpose in the 21st century? And then also uh, the final memo being brought by Minister Martin by the Tornista is in relation to an EU defence force that is being uh, set up or a defence group, if you like, in the Mediterranean to prevent illegal arms smuggling into Libya and illegal petrol smuggling out of Libya. This is sort of an ongoing uh, mission that's been there and he's seen permission to send one of the Defence Forces vessels for a period of seven weeks over the summer. Okay, and is there any question uh, about sending this naval vessel uh, into the Mediterranean in terms of neutrality? Uh, no, I don't think so. We've done it before in terms of other EU operations that have gone on when famously the one when it came to migrants that were... Uh, remember when that, that was a big crisis, particularly Syrian migrants coming over through the Mediterranean and there was a, a Defence Forces vessel, various Defence Forces vessels stationed there over a number of years. So I don't think it, it seems a breach of neutrality because the EU is not at war or in any sort of open mm. conflict with Libya. It's more targeting smuggling and will also have some, some bit of a role when it comes to, to migrants and legal migration as well. Mm, so this is our Irish troops who may be taking on uh, illegal black market smugglers. Is there the prospect in the long term of Irish troops being sent to war uh, and Ireland uh, putting uh, this neutral position behind us at some stage. Is that the objective of this forum? I don't think that's the outright objective of the forum, no. The the forum is more of a broad church. Not not similar, I suppose, in my mind at least, to the citizens' assemblies that have been set up by respective governments now to deal with sort of thorny issues. So I think what the government is hoping is to put the issue on the agenda. And you've seen the language of particularly the Taoiseach and the Taunashta, and even when they swapped roles, change over the last while in relation to our neutrality. And it's probably the first time in decades that there has been a real serious questioning over what has been a policy that a lot of Irish people have supported over the, the, the centuries now in the in Them. Uh, the history, or century rather, in the history of our uh, of our state. Now, though, you have to question. I mean, are we actually neutral in the first place? We're not politically neutral, as politicians keep on reminding us. We are sending aid to to Ukraine, albeit not military aid. And I suppose the question becomes: If there were to be a war in Europe, a bigger war in Europe, would our neutrality be any sort of a defence? In the past, obviously, World War Two being the prime example, it sort mm. of kept Ireland out of conflicts. Um, even though I think, you know, if, if that's, that's the cause of history. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. Of it. No, I know, but I, I mean, I, I, but anyway. I, I think the obvious question is, why did the politicians want us to have uh, this conversation? Uh, because it, it seems uh, that there are politicians, Michal Martin and Leo Bradker, topping that list, uh, who most certainly want to have uh, that conversation. There's a, 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 a lot of interest as to why they want to have it, and if it's as a quid pro quo for anything else with European leaders or American leaders or God knows uh, because 67% of Irish people don't want to have this conversation that Irish Times poll uh, last year I think it was said the vast majority of people want this country to stay neutral I think it's about looking towards the future and a certain amount of it is obviously pressure within Europe that there are very few neutral countries in Europe and our country our neutrality has been largely respected but maybe you know sort of privately frowned upon a little bit the other question is whether our neutrality 
truly matters. Again, were there to be a conflict and we weren't, weren't able to foresee the Ukraine war coming, there's no sense in saying what, what is going to be down the line. Would it protect us? Ukraine had, you know, sort of a neutral status, or certainly non-NATO aligned status before it was invaded. And so I think there is a little bit of that uh, being, you know, if, do we need to sort of buddy up with some of the bigger countries who have views similar to us in case of some future event? But it is all very, very hypothetical. And given our geographical position in Europe, it's highly unlikely we'll be ever under any sort of an armed threat in that case. But it is it is interesting that the conversation has moved more and more there. And 67%, I wonder, and I don't know the data mm. on this, or I haven't seen any polls from even 10, 15 years ago, I wonder how that has changed over time, because certainly historic, in my view, would have been it was much higher than 67% uh, in favour of neutrality. Okay. Uh, they've a, a lot to discuss, obviously. Corporation tax, uh, which we discussed on the programme yesterday, solar panels, as we've been hearing in your reports in the uh, the bulletins, child poverty and child homelessness, uh, obviously on uh, the agenda. But I'm sure they'll be looking forward uh, to next week uh, as well, and the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday uh, Agreement and the arrival of VIP. Yeah, plenty of commemorations going on, and then we're going to be hearing a lot about it over the next week. Discussions of Good Friday, analysis of Good Friday, how successful it's been, and just how transformative it's been for the island. But of course, the big stage event is going to be the arrival of Joe Biden and it's my understanding that in fact in just about 20 minutes time Joe Biden himself is going to make a formal announcement of that trip so we're going to finally get some of those key details including that key question is he where is he coming in Laos and is he definitely coming to Laos because that has been somewhat of the open question I understand that he is it's going to be Laos, Dublin and Mayo that he visits but we're going to get a, a bit more into that looks as though there may be some address perhaps to a stormant in Belfast. That's obviously a little bit more complicated by the fact that the Storm Assembly isn't sitting at the moment and there is no executive. Also suggestions now of an address to the Oireachtas and that the big outdoor event, you remember obviously Barack Obama College Green the last time that he was here, but that's actually going to be in Mayo. It's going to be in Balaná probably on the Friday night of next week and it's going to be the big set piece culmination of the trip. Huge amount of preparation going on. Uh, over the last while there's been US aircraft flying in uh, helicopters. We're just planes flying helicopters on board them and of course the Beast, the big limousine that he uses, the one that's sort of a mix between a tank and a James Bond car and carries a fridge full of uh, 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 blood of the same type as the President just in case anything happens. So the advanced preparation well underway around Ireland and we're going to get a bit more detail now in the next 20 minutes or so. Yeah, I was talking to Mr Biden or Joe uh, as I call him uh, and he said he'd be in Lily Finnegan's over uh, the <laughs> east. <laughs> Love the pint of plane. Love the pint of plane. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that'll be very interesting. We're going to get that uh, confirmation, the announcement from Mr. Biden himself at 11 o'clock this morning. Thank you indeed uh, for that breaking news uh, and indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's our political correspondent, Shonda Fogue. Michael Reed on LMFM. An email from Jerry Floyd about the text earlier referring to the new structure in St. Peter's Place in Drogheda. Jerry says, very funny, like we never heard the 100 times that was said before. I believe this installation has great potential for the future in terms of entertainment. We've already seen it used by a choir, using it for an impromptu concert. There are structures similar to this one on the continent and they are not abused by the 
public if it is used at night as a public urinal well that just serves to show the uncouth or lack of manners and breeding of our townspeople. Thank you Jerry Floyd for your email to michael at lmfm.ie Now to Trim in County Meath where people have been asked to conserve water in order to help restore the levels at the Bray Hill Reservoir. Let's uh, speak to Michael Coniff, Regional Assets Operational Lead for Water with Ishka Ern, uh, the rebranded Irish Water. Good morning to you, Michael. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, obviously, it's a, a pretty dire situation in Trim uh, to be making this uh, appeal uh, this month. Uh, good morning, Michael, and uh, thank you for having me on this morning. Um, I suppose to put it into context, uh, fair enough, there's been a lot of uh, rain over the last couple of weeks. Um, in the river catchment where we extract our raw water for Trim Water Treatment Plant, um, we have found that the quality of the water due to the amount of rain has decreased, and that has meant that we've had to uh, decrease our production rates uh, at the water treatment plant that ultimately supplies the water up to Bray Hill Reservoir in order to have a safe amount of storage capacity in the reservoir. Um, that was our need to, for the last couple of nights, to restrict flow out during between the hours of 10 and 6 in order to replenish um, those reserves in, in, in the reservoir. Um, it's just the fact that the supply-demand balance um, is tight enough um, because uh, the treatment plant had to reduce production to cater for the poor water, raw water quality. Um, that's where we just needed to make up the balance to have the confidence that we have enough of reserves in the reservoir for any any unforeseen issues like a, an unforeseen major burst or, or any other issues like that. That's the, our kind of operational confidence level. Pre- um, and that, that would be the main reason. I presume um, there's a terrible summer ahead for people in the area. Um, I, it's not so much a volume, it's a, it's a production um, issue and uh, uh, as I said, I, I I can't say that for certainty, but uh, I, I I I wouldn't be able to to hazard a guess. Well, what's the difference between volume and production? Because it's the wettest March on record. Uh, that's in eighty three years. 173.3 millimetres of rainfall around the country in just March alone. Yeah, I, I absolutely no issue with the volume of raw water, which is water within the sort of the river catchment um, it's when you extract that water and you treat that to be in compliance with the drinking water regulations um, it's it's that treated water volume that, that that we're really talking about it's not what goes in comes out you, you need to treat that to a certain standard mm. and that's what was being a challenge to reach that if you cannot um, treat that water to be fully of, of, of full quality and in compliance with, with the regulations you cannot send that to the reservoir mm. for distribution. No, no, fair enough, Michael, but I suppose that's the question that people would like to know answered. Uh, I mean, what does this mean for the months ahead when you have more rain in March than ever before and you don't have the capacity to treat it so that it makes for safe drinking water? What lies ahead? I, I, I would say that... Yes, I would agree there could be some ongoing challenges, but um, we have to manage this as, as as best we can. Normally, the plant is quite stable, and normally we are, we are able to meet that. It's just that this incident has caused us to, to do that. We still have enough to meet demand, but it's to build 
it's it's to build the reservoir reserves up to over 75% that, that you'd like to be operating on. The reservoir did go down from last weekend to about 35%, and it was our action then to bring that bring those reservoir levels back up to over 75% that necessitated mm. uh, to do this. So it, it's purely an operational issue as opposed to... Um, as opposed to any other challenges that, okay. that we may... That we uh, may. Uh, and you said it, it was a, an incident. Uh, uh, just to try and understand uh, what that means, uh, did something happen to pollute the water? No, it, 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 it's simply where the... If you can imagine the amount of rain, there's a lot of runoff from the surrounding environment into the river. The water would technically, as you would know, after a lot of rain, would be quite turbid. It would be, or it would be discoloured. It's too... Take, it's to get that water to the clarity it, it needs to, to be. What is it? Is it hard. muck? And that's what technically you could call it. That maybe <laughs> it's not very, it's not, it's not very technical, out. but fair enough, okay. Uh, but is that not commonplace? It, 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 yes, it, it, it would be commonplace in, in a lot of cases, and the plant is designed to cater for that, mm. um, where the plant will go into backwash to we plenish itself and what we were finding is that, that um, we were going through a number, uh, an increased number of backwash cycles so our normal production rates were just not being met for this period, period of time. Okay, uh, It will be standard practice in, in a lot of plants. All right. uh, that, it's, and the plant is the subject of what you describe as a major project upgrade. Uh, until that uh, upgrade is completed, uh, is there a risk uh, that we'll have repeated uh, incidents such as this. There could be there, there could be some risk. Yes, that this could occur again. Um, if, if if the if the water is floundered, or yes, that that can be the case. But it's something that we monitor and manage, and we give advance warning. But I, I suppose technically, it's to make sure that we have enough of reservoir reserves. Um, that is our primary reason for doing that. We can meet demand, but just that the reservoir levels have been slowly, cumulatively dropping over the last uh, number of nights and it's simply to keep that to above that 75% level. That, that That's the key that we're in for here okay. where we would have brought about these, these restrictions um, just at night. And that would be the reason why you would seek just for people maybe to conserve water so that um, we can build as much much reserves in the reservoir for that period overnight. Okay, and that means reducing the pressure from 10 o'clock at night until early morning, I gather. Is that expected to continue for some time? No, I, 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 would, see, I would see that we would probably stop doing it after tonight. Tomorrow night we'll certainly review again, but I would be confident enough that we would be able to stop um, for the Easter holiday period. Okay. Um, well, it's food for thought for people in the area as well, uh, because uh, I'm sure there's uh, people who, who need uh, water more than others. We all need it. Uh, but perhaps uh, if uh, people stop and think and uh, think about wasting water and if they can conserve it, it may help uh, with the task in hand. Michael, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. Thank, Thank you. That's uh, Michael Conniff, Regional Assets Operational Lead with Ishka Aaron. Uh, now, thank you to Helen in Trim, who's been in touch, and she said, you should be saying President Biden and not Mr. Biden. Everyone calling Trump President Trump, you would think he was the president. Thanks, Helen. Uh, I feel as though I've been well and truly slapped on the wrist, and rightly so. Uh, I was only joking, tongue-in-cheek, when I, I said Mr. Biden, and then I... 
said he calls me Joe uh, but uh, anyway hopefully he will be coming to County Loud uh, because that will cause uh, a lot of excitement uh, locally indeed it'll bring uh, an awful lot of attention uh, to the area and uh, to all of the amenities uh, that the area has uh, to offer. I saw last week that the County Council had a, a list of all the great things, the 10 top things uh, that Mr. Joe President Biden, I better be careful what I say, Ellen, about what President Biden might do uh, when he comes uh, to County Loud, assuming that he will. Uh, but it'll bring a, a lot of uh, global attention uh, to the area and there's no harm in that. Uh, thanks uh, to Joe in Trim who says, if Irish water can't deal with muck in the rivers, we've got a bit of a problem. God forbid what's ahead this summer. Thank you, Joe. That's the final word for today. Our programme is uh, just uh, running out of time. We're waiting to hear what the President has to say about his visit to Ireland in the next few minutes. Uh, Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.